Welcome again to Opera Vox Audiobooks. My name's David Clark, and I'll be reading many of the great classics on this podcast. If you are not familiar with my work, you can also find me on LibreVox.org. If you look up David Clark on LibreVox.org, you'll find uh, some recordings of the Count of Monte Cristo and the Sherlock Holmes stories. You can also follow the progress of this podcast on my blog at verysmallrocks.io. That's verysmallrocks.io. There's also a place for you to make comments if you so wish. And now, without further ado, please sit back and enjoy the story. Chapter 2. The New Margarita. On the first landing, Sorelli ran against the Comte de Chagny, who was coming upstairs. The Count, who was generally so calm, seemed greatly excited. "'I was just going to you,' he said, taking off his hat. "'Oh, Sorelli, what an evening! And Christine Daillet, what a triumph!' "'Impossible,' said Meg Giry. Six months ago she used to sing like a crock. "'But do let us get by, my dear Count.' continues the brat with a saucy curtsy. We are going to inquire after a poor man who was found hanging by the neck. Just then, the acting manager came fussing past and stopped when he heard this remark. What? he exclaimed roughly. Have you girls heard already? Well, please forget about it for tonight. And above all, don't let Monsieur de Bienne and Monsieur Poligny here. It would upset them too much on their last day. They all went on to the foyer of the ballet, which was already full of people. The Comte de Chagny was right. No gala performance ever equalled this one. All the great composers of the day had conducted their own works in turns. Fauré and Krauss had sung, and on that evening Christine Daillet had revealed her true self for the first time to the astonished and enthusiastic audience. Gounod had conducted the funeral march of a marionette. Rea, his beautiful overture to Siguard, Sanson, the Danse Macabre and a Reverie Orientale, Massenet, an unpublished Hungarian march, Guiro, his carnival, Delibes, the Valse Lante from Sylvia, and the Pizzicati from Coppelia. Mademoiselle Kraus had sung the Bolero in the Vespri Siciliani, and Mademoiselle Denise Bloch, the drinking song in Lucrezia Borgia. But the real triumph was reserved for Christine Daillet, who had begun by singing a few passages from Romeo and Juliet. It was the first time that the young artist sang in this work of Gounod, which had not been transferred to the opera, and which was revived at the Opéra Comique after it had been produced at the old Théâtre Lyrique by Madame Cavaglio. Those who heard her say that her voice in these passages was seraphic, but this was nothing to the superhuman notes that she gave forth in the prison scene and the final trio in Faust, which she sang in the place of La Carlotta, who was ill. No one had ever heard or seen anything like it. Daillet revealed a new margarita that night, a margarita of a splendour, a radiance hitherto unsuspected. The whole house went mad, rising to its feet, shouting, cheering, clapping, while Christine sobbed and fainted in the arms of her fellow singers, and had to be carried to her dressing-room. 
A few subscribers, however, protested. Why had so great a treasure been kept from them all that time? Till then, Christine Daae had played a good sea belle to Carlotta's rather too splendidly material Margarita, and it had needed Carlotta's incomprehensible and inexcusable absence from this gala night for the little Daae, at a moment's warning, to show all that she could in a part of the programme reserved for the Spanish diva. Well, what the subscribers wanted to know was, why had De Bien and Poligny applied to Daae when Carlotta was taken ill? Did they know of her hidden genius? And if they knew of it, why had they kept it hidden? And why had she kept it hidden? Oddly enough, she was not known to have a professor of singing at the moment. She had often said she meant to practice alone for the future. The whole thing was a mystery. The Comte de Chagny, standing up in his box, listened to all this frenzy and took part in it by loudly applauding. Philippe Georges Marie Comte de Chagny was just 41 years of age. He was a great aristocrat and a good-looking man, above middle height and with attractive features, in spite of his hard forehead and his rather cold eyes. He was exquisitely polite to the women and a little haughty to the men, who did not always forgive him for his success in society. He had an excellent heart and an irreproachable conscience. On the death of old Count Philibert, he became the head of one of the oldest and most distinguished families in France, whose arms dated back to the 14th century. The Chagnys owned a great deal of property, and when the old Count, who was a widower, died, it was no easy task for Philippe to accept the management of so large an estate. His two sisters and his brother Raoul would not hear of a division and waive their claim to their shares leaving themselves entirely in Philippe's hands, as though the right of primogenitor had never ceased to exist. When the two sisters married, on the same day, they received their portion from their brother, not as a thing rightfully belonging to them, but as a dowry for which they thanked him. The Comtesse de Chagny, née de Morogie de la Martiniere, had died in giving birth to Raoul, who was born twenty years after his elder brother. At the time of the old Count's death, Raoul was twelve years of age. Philippe busied himself actively with the youngster's education. He was admirably assisted in this work, first by his sisters and afterward by an old aunt, the widow of a naval officer who lived at Brest and gave young Raoul a taste for the sea. The lad entered the border training ship, finished his course with honours, and quietly made his trip round the world. Thanks to powerful influence, he had just been appointed a member of the official expedition on board the Requin, which was to be sent to the Arctic Circle in search of the survivors of the D'Artois expedition, of whom nothing had been heard for three years. Meanwhile, he was enjoying a long furlough, which would not be over for six months, and already the dowagers of the Faubourg Saint-Germain were pitying the handsome and apparently delicate stripling for the hard work in store for him. The shyness of the sailor lad, I was almost saying his innocence, was remarkable. He seemed to have but just left the women's apron strings. As a matter of fact, petted as he was by his two sisters and his old aunt, he had retained from this purely feminine education manners that were almost candid and stamped with a charm 
that nothing had yet been able to sully. He was a little over twenty-one years of age, and looked eighteen. He had a small, fair moustache, beautiful blue eyes, and a complexion like a girl's. Philippe spoiled Raoul. To begin with, he was very proud of him, and pleased to foresee a glorious career for his junior in the navy in which one of their ancestors, the famous Chagny de la Roche, had held the rank of admiral. He took advantage of the young man's leave of absence to show him Paris, with all its luxurious and artistic delights. The Count considered that at Raoul's age it is not good to be too good. Philippe himself had a character that was very well balanced in work and pleasure alike. His demeanour was always faultless, and he was incapable of setting his brother a bad example. He took him with him wherever he went. He even introduced him to the foyer of the ballet. I know that the Count was said to be on terms with Sorelli, but it could hardly be reckoned as a crime for this nobleman, a bachelor with plenty of leisure, especially since his sisters were settled, to come and spend an hour or two after dinner in the company of a dancer, who, though not so very, very witty, had the finest eyes that ever were seen. And besides, there are places where a true Parisian, when he has the rank of the Comte de Chagny, is bound to show himself, and at that time the foyer of the ballet at the opera was one of those places. Lastly, Philippe would perhaps not have taken his brother behind the scenes of the opera if Raoul had not been the first to ask him, repeatedly renewing his request with a gentle obstinacy which the Count remembered at a later date. On that evening, Philippe, after applauding the Daillet, turned to Raoul and saw that he was quite pale. "'Don't you see?' said Raoul. "'That the woman's fainting.' "'You look like fainting yourself,' said the Count. "'What's the matter?' But Raoul had recovered himself and was standing up. "'Let's go and see,' he said. "'She never sang like that before.' The Count gave his brother a curious smiling glance and seemed quite pleased. They were soon at the door leading from the house to the stage. Numbers of subscribers were slowly making their way through. Raoul tore his gloves without knowing what he was doing, and Philippe had much too kind a heart to laugh at him for his impatience. But he now understood why Raoul was absent-minded when spoken to, and why he always tried to turn every conversation to the subject of the opera. They reached the stage, and pushed through the crowd of gentlemen, scene-shifters, supers, and chorus-girls, Raoul leading the way, feeling that his heart no longer belonged to him, his face set with passion, while Count Philippe followed him with difficulty and continued to smile. At the back of the stage, Raoul had to stop before the inrush of the little troupe of ballet girls who blocked the passage which he was trying to enter. More than one chaffing phrase darted from little made-up lips to which he did not reply, and at last he was able to pass and dived into the semi-darkness of a corridor ringing with the name of Daye, Daye. The Count was surprised to find that Raoul knew the way. He had never taken him to Christine's himself, and came to the conclusion that Raoul must have gone there alone while the Count stayed talking in the foyer with Sorelli, who often asked him to wait until it was her time to go on, 
and sometimes handed him the little gaiters in which she ran down from her dressing-room to preserve the spotlessness of her satin dancing-shoes and her flesh-coloured tights. Sorelli had an excuse. She had lost her mother. Postponing his usual visit to Sorelli for a few minutes, the Count followed his brother down the passage that led to Daillet's dressing-room, and saw that it had never been so crammed as on that evening, when the whole house seemed excited by her success, and also by her fainting fit. For the girl had not yet come to, and the doctor of the theatre had just arrived at the moment when Raoul entered at his heels. Christine, therefore, received the first aid of the one, while opening her eyes in the arms of the other. The Count and many more remained crowding in the doorway. "'Don't you think, doctor, that those gentlemen had better clear the room?' asked Raoul coolly. "'There's no breathing here.' "'You're quite right,' said the doctor. And he sent everyone away except Raoul and the maid, who looked at Raoul with eyes of the most undisguised astonishment. She had never seen him before, and yet dared not question him, and the doctor imagined that the young man was only acting as he did because he had the right to. The Viscount, therefore, remained in the room watching Christine as she slowly returned to life, while even the joint managers, de Bienne and Poligny, who had come to offer their sympathy and congratulations, found themselves thrust into the passage among the crowd of dandies. The Comte de Chagny, who was one of those standing outside, laughed. "'Oh, the rogue! The rogue!' and he added under his breath, "'Those youngsters with their schoolgirl airs! So is a Chagny after all!' He turned to go to Sorelli's dressing-room, but met her on the way with her little troop of trembling ballet girls, as we have seen. Meanwhile, Christine Daillé uttered a deep sigh, which was answered by a groan. She turned her head, saw Raoul, and started. She looked at the doctor, on whom she bestowed a smile, then at her maid, then at Raoul again. "'Monsieur,' she said in a voice not much above a whisper, "'who are you?' "'Mademoiselle,' replied the young man, kneeling on one knee and pressing a fervent kiss on the diva's hand, "'I am the little boy who went into the sea to rescue your scarf.' Christine again looked at the doctor and the maid and all three began to laugh. Raoul turned very red and stood up. "'Mademoiselle,' he said, "'since you are pleased not to recognize me, I should like to say something to you in private, something very important. When I am better, do you mind?' And her voice shook. "'You have been very good.' "'Yes, you must go,' said the doctor with his pleasantest smile. "'Leave me to attend to Mademoiselle.' "'I am not ill now,' said Christine suddenly, with strange and unexpected energy. She rose and passed her hand over her eyelids. "'Thank you, doctor. I should like to be alone. Please go away, all of you. Leave me. I feel very restless this evening.' The doctor tried to make a short protest, but, perceiving the girl's evident agitation, he thought the best remedy was not to thwart her and he went away, saying to Raoul outside, "'She is not herself to-night. She is usually so gentle.' Then he said a good-night, and Raoul was left alone. The whole of this part of the theatre was now deserted. 
The farewell ceremony was no doubt taking place in the foyer of the ballet. Raoul thought that Daye might go to it, and he waited in the silent solitude, even hiding in the favouring shadow of a doorway. He felt a terrible pain at his heart, and it was of this that he wanted to speak to Daye without delay. Suddenly the dressing-room door opened, and the maid came out by herself, carrying bundles. He stopped her and asked how her mistress was. The woman laughed, and said that she was quite well, but that he must not disturb her, for she wished to be left alone, and she passed on. One idea alone filled Raoul's burning brain. Of course, Daye wished to be left alone. For him! Had he not told her that he wanted to speak to her privately? Hardly breathing, he went up to the dressing-room, and with his ear to the door to catch her reply, prepared to knock. But his hand dropped. He had heard a man's voice in the dressing-room, saying in a curiously masterful tone, "'Christine, you must love me!' And Christine's voice, infinitely sad and trembling, as though accompanied by tears, replied, "'How can you talk like that, when I sing only for you?' Raoul leaned against the panel to ease his pain. His heart, which had seemed gone forever, returned to his breast and was throbbing loudly. The whole passage echoed with its beating, and Raoul's ears were deafened. Surely, if his heart continued to make such a noise, they would hear it inside, they would open the door, and the young man would be turned away in disgrace. What a position for a Shanyi, to be caught listening behind a door! He took his heart in his two hands to make it stop. The man's voice spoke again. "'Are you very tired?' "'Oh, to-night I gave you my soul, and I am dead,' Christine replied. "'Your soul is a beautiful thing, child,' replied the grave man's voice. "'And I thank you. No emperor ever received so fair a gift. The angels wept to-night.' Raoul heard nothing after that. Nevertheless, he did not go away. But, as though he feared lest he should be caught, he returned to his dark corner, determined to wait for the man to leave the room. At one and the same time, he had learned what love meant, and hatred. He knew that he loved. He wanted to know whom he hated. To his great astonishment, the door opened, and Christine Daae appeared, wrapped in furs with her face hidden in a lace veil, alone. She closed the door behind her, but Raoul observed that she did not lock it. She passed him. He did not even follow her with his eyes, for his eyes were fixed on the door, which did not open again. When the passage was once more deserted, he crossed it, opened the door of the dressing-room, went in, and shut the door. He found himself in absolute darkness. The gas had been turned out. "'There is someone here,' said Raoul, with his back against the closed door, in a quivering voice. "'What are you hiding for?' All was darkness and silence. Raoul heard only the sound of his own breathing. He quite failed to see that the indiscretion of his conduct was exceeding all bounds. "'You shan't leave this until I let you,' he exclaimed. "'If you don't answer, you are a coward.' but I'll expose you. And he struck a match. The blaze lit up the room. There was no one in the room. 
Raoul, first turning the key in the door, lit the gas jets. He went into the dressing closet, opened the cupboards, hunted about, felt the walls with his moist hands. Nothing. Look here, he said aloud. Am I going mad? He stood for ten minutes, listening to the gas flaring in the silence of the empty room. Lover though he was, he did not even think of stealing a ribbon that would have given him the perfume of the woman he loved. He went out, not knowing what he was doing nor where he was going. At a given moment in his wayward progress, an icy draught struck him in the face. He found himself at the bottom of a staircase, down which, behind him, a procession of workmen were carrying a sort of stretcher covered with a white sheet. "'Which is the way out, please?' he asked of one of the men. "'Straight in front of you. The door is open, but let us pass.' Pointing to the stretcher, he asked mechanically, "'What's that?' the workmen answered. "'That is Joseph Bouquet, who was found in the third cellar, hanging between a farmhouse and a scene from the Roi de Lahore. He took off his hat, fell back to make room for the procession, and went out. Chapter 3 The Mysterious Reason During this time, the farewell ceremony was taking place. I have already said that this magnificent function was being given on the occasion of the retirement of Monsieur de Bienne and Monsieur Poligny, who had determined to die game, as we say nowadays. They had been assisted in the realization of their ideal, though melancholy, programme by all that counted in the social and artistic world of Paris. All these people met, after the performance, in the foyer of the ballet, where Sorelli waited for the arrival of the retiring managers, with a glass of champagne in her hand and a little prepared speech at the tip of her tongue. Behind her, the members of the corps de ballet, young and old, discussed the events of the day in whispers or exchanged discreet signals with their friends, a noisy crowd of whom surrounded the supper-tables arranged along the slanting floor. A few of the dancers had already changed into ordinary dress, but most of them wore their skirts of gossamer gauze, and all had thought it the right thing to put on a special face for the occasion. All, that is, except little Jeanne, whose fifteen summers, happy age, seemed already to have forgotten the ghost and the death of Joseph Bouquet. She never ceased to laugh and chatter, to hop about and play practical jokes, until Messieurs Debienne and Poligny appeared on the steps of the foyer, when she was severely called to order by the impatient Sorelli. Everybody remarked that the retiring managers looked cheerful, as is the Paris way. None will ever be a true Parisian, who has not learned to wear a mask of gaiety over his sorrows, and one of sadness, boredom, or indifference over his inward joy. You know that one of your friends is in trouble. Do not try to console him. He will tell you that he is already comforted, but, should he have met with good fortune, be careful how you congratulate him. He thinks it so natural that he is surprised that you should speak of it. 
In Paris, our lives are one masked ball, and the foyer of the ballet is the last place in which two men so knowing as Monsieur de Bienne and Monsieur Poligny would have made the mistake of betraying their grief, however genuine it might be. And they were already smiling rather too broadly upon Sorelli, who had begun to recite her speech, when an exclamation from that little madcap of a jam broke the smile of the managers so brutally that the expression of distress and dismay that lay beneath it became apparent to all eyes. "'The opera ghost!' Jam yelled these words in a tone of unspeakable terror, and her finger pointed among the crowd of dandies to a face so pallid, so lugubrious, and so ugly, with two such deep black cavities under the straddling eyebrows, that the death's head in question immediately scored a huge success. "'The opera ghost!' "'The opera ghost!' Everybody laughed and pushed his neighbour and wanted to offer the opera ghost a drink. But he was gone. He had slipped through the crowd, and the others vainly hunted for him while two old gentlemen tried to calm little Jean, and while little Giry stood screaming like a peacock. Sorelli was furious. She had not been able to finish her speech. The managers had kissed her, thanked her, and run away as fast as the ghost himself. No one was surprised at this, for it was known that they were to go through the same ceremony on the floor above in the foyer of the singers, and that finally they were themselves to receive their personal friends for the last time in the great lobby outside the manager's office, where a regular supper would be served. Here they found the new managers, Monsieur Armand Montcharmin and Monsieur Firmin Richard, whom they hardly knew. Nevertheless, they were lavish in protestations of friendship and received a thousand flattering compliments in reply, so that those of the guests who had feared that they had a rather tedious evening in store for them at once put on brighter faces. The supper was almost gay, and a particularly clever speech of the representative of the government, mingling the glories of the past with the successes of the future, caused the greatest cordiality to prevail. The retiring managers had already handed over to their successors the two tiny master keys which opened all the doors, thousands of doors, of the opera house. And those little keys, the object of general curiosity, were being passed from hand to hand when the attention of some of the guests was diverted by their discovery, at the end of the table, of that strange, wan and fantastic face with the hollow eyes which had already appeared in the foyer of the ballet and been greeted by little Jeanne's exclamation. "'The opera ghost!' There sat the ghost, as natural as could be, except that he neither ate nor drank. Those who began by looking at him with a smile ended by turning away their heads, for the sight of him at once provoked the most funereal thoughts. No one repeated the joke of the foyer. No one exclaimed, "'There's the opera ghost!' He himself did not speak a word, and his very neighbours could not have stated at what precise moment he had sat down between them. But every one felt that if the dead did ever come and sit at the table of the living, they could not cut a more ghastly figure." The friends of Firmin Richard and Armand Montcharmin thought that this lean and skinny guest was an acquaintance of Debien and Poligny, 
while Debiens and Poligny's friends believed that the cadaverous individual belonged to Firmin Richard and Armand Montcharmin's party. The result was that no request was made for an explanation, no unpleasant remark, no joke in bad taste which might have offended this visitor from the tomb. A few of those present, who knew the story of the ghost and the description of him given by the chief scene-shifter, they did not know of Joseph Bouquet's death, thought in their own minds that the man at the end of the table might easily have passed for him, and yet, according to the story, the ghost had no nose, and the person in question had. But Monsieur Montcharmin declares in his memoirs that the guest's nose was transparent. Long, thin, and transparent are his exact words. I, for my part, will add that this might very well apply to a false nose. Monsieur Montcharmin may have taken for transparency what was only shininess. Everybody knows that orthopaedic science provides beautiful false noses for those who have lost their noses naturally or as a result of an operation. Did the ghost really take a seat at the manager's supper table that night? Uninvited. And can we be sure that the figure was that of the opera ghost himself? Who would venture to assert as much? I mention the incident not because I wish for a second to make the reader believe, or even to try to make him believe, that the ghost was capable of such a sublime piece of impudence, but because, after all, the thing is impossible. Monsieur Armand Montcharmin, in chapter 11 of his memoirs, says, When I think of this first evening, I cannot separate the secret confided to us by Messieurs Debien and Poligny in their office from the presence at our supper of that ghostly person whom none of us knew. What happened was this. Messieurs Debien and Poligny, sitting at the centre of the table, had not seen the man with the death's head. Suddenly, he began to speak. The ballet girls are right, he said. The death of that poor Bouquet is perhaps not so natural as people think. Debienne and Poligny gave a start. Is Bouquet dead? they cried. Yes, replied the man, or the shadow of a man, quietly. He was found this evening, hanging in the third cellar between a farmhouse and a scene from the Roi de Lahore. The two managers, or rather ex-managers, at once rose and stared strangely at the speaker. They were more excited than they need have been, that is to say, more excited than anyone need be by the announcement of the suicide of a chief scene-shifter. They looked at each other. They had both turned whiter than the tablecloth. At last, Debienne made a sign to Monsieur Richard and Montcharmin, Poligny muttered a few words of excuse to the guests, and all four went into the manager's office. I leave Monsieur Montcharmin to complete the story. In his memoirs he says, Messieurs Debien and Poligny seem to grow more and more excited, and they appear to have something very difficult to tell us. First they asked as if we knew the man, sitting at the end of the table, who had told them of the death of Joseph Bouquet. And when we answered in the negative, they looked still more concerned. They took the master keys from our hands, stared at them for a moment, and advised us to have new locks made with the greatest secrecy for the rooms, closets, and presses that we might wish to have hermetically closed. They said this so funnily that we began to laugh, 
and to ask if there were thieves at the opera. They replied that there was something worse, which was the ghost. We began to laugh again, feeling sure that they were indulging in some joke that was intended to crown our little entertainment. Then, at their request, we became serious, resolving to humour them and to enter into the spirit of the game. They told us that they never would have spoken to us of the ghost if they had not received formal orders from the ghost himself to ask us to be pleasant to him and to grant any request that he might make. However, in their relief at leaving a domain where that tyrannical shade held sway, they had hesitated until the last moment to tell us this curious story, which our sceptical minds were certainly not prepared to entertain. But the announcement of the death of Joseph Bouquet had served them as a brutal reminder that whenever they had disregarded the ghost's wishes, some fantastic or disastrous event had brought them to a sense of their dependence. During these unexpected utterances, made in a tone of the most secret and important confidence, I looked at Richard. Richard, in his student days, had acquired a great reputation for practical joking, and he seemed to relish the dish which was being served up to him in his turn. He did not miss a morsel of it, though the seasoning was a little gruesome because of the death of Bouquet. He nodded his head sadly, while the others spoke and his features assumed the air of a man who bitterly regretted having taken over the opera, now that he knew that there was a ghost mixed up in the business. I could think of nothing better than to give him a servile imitation of this attitude of despair. However, in spite of all our efforts, we could not, at the finish, help bursting out laughing in the faces of Messieurs de Bienne and Poligny, who, seeing us pass straight from the gloomiest state of mind to one of the most insolent merriment, acted as though they thought that we had gone mad. The joke became a little tedious, and Richard asked half seriously and half in jest, "'But after all, what does this ghost of yours want?' Monsieur Poligny went to his desk and returned with a copy of the memorandum book. The memorandum book begins with the well-known words saying that the management of the opera shall give to the performance of the National Academy of Music the splendour that becomes the first lyric stage in France and ends with clause 98, which says that the privilege can be withdrawn if the manager infringes the conditions stipulated in the memorandum book. This is followed by the conditions, which are four in number. The copy produced by Monsieur Poligny was written in black ink and exactly similar to that in our possession, except that at the end it contained a paragraph in red ink and in a queer laboured handwriting, as though it had been produced by dipping the heads of matches into the ink, the writing of a child that has never got beyond the downstrokes and has not learned to join its letters. This paragraph ran word for word as follows. 5. Or if the manager in any month delay for more than a fortnight the payment of the allowance which he shall make to the opera ghost, an allowance of 20,000 francs a month, say 240,000 francs a year. Monsieur Poligny pointed with a hesitating finger to this last clause, which we certainly did not expect. Is this all? Does he not want anything else? 
asked Richard with greatest coolness. Yes, he does, replied Poligny, and he turned over the pages of the memorandum book until he came to the clause specifying the days on which certain private boxes were to be reserved for the free use of the President of the Republic, the ministers, and so on. At the end of this clause, a line had been added, also in red ink. Box 5 on the grand tier shall be placed at the disposal of the opera ghost for every performance. When we saw this, there was nothing else for us to do but to rise from our chairs, shake our two predecessors warmly by the hand, and congratulate them on thinking of this charming little joke, which proved that the old French sense of humour was never likely to become extinct. Richard added that he now understood why Messieurs Debien and Poligny were retiring from the management of the National Academy of Music. Business was impossible with so unreasonable a ghost. Certainly, two hundred and forty thousand francs are not to be picked up for the asking, said Monsieur Poligny, without moving a muscle of his face. And have you considered what the loss over Box 5 meant to us? We did not sell it once, and not only that, but we had to return the subscription. Why, it's awful. We really can't work to keep ghosts. We prefer to go away. Yes, echoed Monsieur Debien. We prefer to go away. Let us go. And he stood up. Richard said, But after all, all it seems to me that you are much too kind to the ghost. If I had such a troublesome ghost as that, I should not hesitate to have him arrested. But how? Where? they cried in chorus. We have never seen him. But when he comes to his box? We have never seen him in his box. Then sell it. Sell the opera ghost box? Well, gentlemen, try it. Thereupon we all four left the office. Richard and I had never laughed so much in our lives. <laughs>